I can also tell you that something that I think is uh, the most controversial take is that I believe that solo solo researchers will do the best uh, in the bull. It's not going to be teams. It's going to be solo simply because uh, teams are too hard to, to scale and they're too hard to work. So I really believe in the 10,000x engineer, uh, even in right. the bull, especially in the bull. So do you think because solo researchers, essentially, uh, if you hire, let's say, four individual solo researchers, you're getting better bang for your money than you're hiring like a team of four? Yeah, uh, more, 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 uh, moreover, the main problem that uh, most uh, researchers have is a vis visibility problem. And so you can argue that the reason why you will join some other firm or team is to basically get that promotion. But there, there's always two sides uh, to that. One side is, yes, you will get more engagements because uh, you're being, you know, your brand is being offered. But the other side is you're not getting engagements because you suck. So just get good. And uh, what happens uh, when you get good is that if you get shorthanded in any way, as in, are you getting the spear bit per week pay and you're an LSR and, you, and you're being offered anything less, you're just going to leave instantly. So it's, it's really hard to scale that when everybody's absolutely, you know, a psychopath. Right. Everybody's like, bro, this is what I want. Give me that or fuck off. So it's really hard to, to make that work when people have options like, you know, blast contest, uh, leading a contest, everybody's fighting. And so the only concern that you want to keep in mind is whether having all of these contests is good or bad for the projects, because I believe it is worse for the projects uh, compared to last year where last year it was obvious that you do a Coderina contest, you get all of the attention, you're super safe and it's great. Well, today you have seven different running contests. Let's say, you know, all the top people, like, and I can name them, uh, you know, out of respect, you know, like Trust has its own firm, Watchbag has its own firm, you got Ladboy, but Ladboy maybe also has its own firm. Uh, Ronnie from Offside Labs probably has its own firm. You have your own thing going on. Django, who, do, who knows if he's going to come back. I'm, maybe I'm going to be there, but maybe I'm not. Zach, maybe he's going to be there, maybe he's not. Who are you left with? You're left with the people that either couldn't, couldn't get to a firm or couldn't get to the new level or didn't want to. And so the chances of always having, you know, these top tier researchers becomes, becomes a bit lower. And so that's where the, you know, the firm becomes more uh, a guarantee. But what tends to happen over time is that if, let's say, even yourself, let's say you try and do two audits in a row or two audits in parallel, what are the odds of you missing something? Uh, and the answer is the odds increase as the, the more uh, code bases you check. And so um, uh, it's, it's a fundamental issue for, for projects, not necessarily for researchers. Because as a researcher, anytime you get paid less, you'll just change and do whatever pays you more, which in the bull is going to be bug bounties, obviously. Obviously, like, what do you think? Like, it's obvious it's going to be bug bounties, saving real money 
when everybody's uh, hyped and uh, um, the, but the opposite side is that for projects it becomes more difficult to choose and so it becomes more important to be in tune with what's going on and really you know evaluate what you what you're getting uh, in terms of a contest and in terms of other uh, initiatives yeah i think it really depends on what kind of part of the cycle we are at any given moment because with you know it's been a very dynamic change since the start of let's say 2022 to now it's clear that the pace of innovation and new players in the industry is increasing a lot faster and the options are um, branching out in many different ways. So for contests, like you said, now it feels like contests are really spread out. So it's hard from a project perspective to kind of get in at the right time. And especially, let's say you have booked your contest in for a month in advance and then the blast contest comes and now no one's going to have a look at your contest. <laughs> Right. And then you can Rest argue about the, the game yeah. theory, the game theory about, you know, you should look at the other like things that uh, things that people wouldn't expect to be looking at and blah, blah, blah. But when push comes to shove, people are going to go where the money is. You know, the, the yeah. big amounts are, are going to attract. Uh, I really, I really love talking about the game theory of choosing the contest and figuring everything out, but I think what I like to teach as a, uh, you know, for office hours that I do in general, or even to my students is that you, you should evaluate critically your results and what happened, but you should also be uh, confident in the fact that if you get better, you're going to get better results and not even because it's true, because the reality is for many edge cases, like the top people on, uh, let's say, even in Immunify, as far as I understand, the number one is basically either like a firm or it's basically set up to look incredibly good. Uh, uh, but many of those people, they are basically a one-off scenario where you, you make, you know, you hit the jackpot once and then you do whatever as career and you just re-roll to a different name or whatever. And th there's nothing wrong with it. But what I'm saying is, objectively speaking, you, you want to just ask yourself this question is, will you hit the jackpot if you try many times or will you hit the jackpot if you only try once? And so if you agree with me that you just try more, then uh, you, 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 you can have this philosophy where the better you get, the more likely you are. And, uh, uh, and then at the same time, you don't want to draw on in work because you want to leave that space to try something new. And so the blast contest is the perfect example of a big problem for uh, platforms and a great advantage for solo researchers, because if I'm not scheduled, fuck it, I'm just gonna try it, right? And so having that flexibility, especially as more opportunities come, becomes more important than ever, because you don't wanna put a cap to your results by simply guaranteeing an engagement, which is what it, what a audit is. I'm gonna you know be there for X weeks, and you're gonna give me Y money, and that's basically a lock-in of that value. So if you if you look at uh, it from that perspective, then um, it's it's really hard to lock something in if you're extremely bullish about uh, what can happen in the future. Yeah, that's a perspective I didn't consider before, and it's really cool, actually. And I think it applies especially to bug bounty hunters, 
um, because they're the ones that are going to have the flexibility. And I agree that in the following years, things are going to get more and more ridiculous. We're going to see more and more ridiculous contests. And it might be every once in a blue moon, but I think the frequency is going to increase. So maybe instead of having once a year of ridiculous $1 million contest, you might start seeing them twice, three times, four times a year. And if you're a bug bounty hunter, you have the flexibility to switch up at any time. And that doesn't take away from your earnings just because of the nature of bug bounty hunting. Because you can come, like whatever you're doing, you can just come back to it right after the big contest. So yeah. I think if you're good enough, if you're that level that bug bounties can become a main source of income, then that that's definitely the most financially rewarding place to be in the next few years, I believe. If you're not at that level that you're you can live off bug bug hunting or you just you just don't like coping with the uncertainty of income, which I you could argue that is a skill issue as well. I reckon that <laughs> contests contests are probably still gonna be the best bet, especially now that everything's so spread out and in the, you don't have that concentration that all the OG researchers, all the heavy hitters are gonna show up and gonna uh, get everyone's money. Now everything is spread out. So the beginners have a large chance again. Yeah, and uh, I think the biggest consideration there is really a personal one. It's really whether you find the enjoyment in winning, as in, do you want to be first as many times as possible and do you hate losing? Or do you want to have uh, either a major impact or do you want to have like a, uh, let's, call, let's call it a newsworthy impact? Uh, I think for, uh, for uh, a newsworthy impact, what I will do and what I'm considering especially is to have um, like specific projects that uh, you basically shadow babysit. They don't even know you exist. That doesn't matter. What matters is you learn about the project, you follow it, and then you prepare to prevent something. And so that's one scenario. And then obviously that scenario can also evolve in a more collaborative scenario where you basically just send them your lows, your mediums, and then you create a relationship. I think that's how you can launch your own company. You know, even if there was a million different firms, like just pick one project you like that you know has uh, sufficient money and sufficient interest. Just send them your findings and over time you'll build a relation that is based on value. So it's a good way to start. The second level will be to just grind contests. I feel like there's something uh, just awesome about the idea of being like, okay, whatever. I'm, I'm not going to look at the money as much. I'm not going to try and maximize it to the cent. But I know the EV is good in contests. So I'm going to just grind contests forever. I'm going to decline every you know, request for audit or whatever. Every time I get a request for audit, I'll charge them four times the average. I don't care. I'm just going to do the contest and just see what happens. I think there's something great there because you eliminate a lot of the uncertainty and the uncertainty, like based on your uh, personality, the uncertainty can be worse than choosing anything. Uh, for many people, 
like you know you, you read all of this stuff and i and i talk about this because i see it in myself as well like you like what i try to do for myself is i try to find whatever is going to get me to just focus on the action and on building something and so uh i ask myself that often it's like what if i just drop everything and i just do contests i'm like fuck it that would help me focus on uh, you know getting better because you can you you can argue about the money but you cannot argue about the skill you get objectively better if you just grind contests uh, all the time uh and i think it's because you get more resourceful where uh the the best researcher is able to find uh, more stuff with less energy and so i i try i try to think about that versus the money which will be more about uh, selecting the opportunity better i find that you know if i know that it takes me 20 hours to find something interesting then five hours even 10 hours become uh, a normal time investment just in deciding what to do next and so but and the funny thing i would say is that this is the same uh, process that happens for like C-suite jobs, where I don't know if you ever read about, you know, these top jobs, but like you don't like, it's not like you have a, a hundred offer every week uh, for, you know, for really good jobs. It takes even six months or even years to find the new, you know, the new CEO of Apple, the new CEO of Amazon, it takes years. And so uh, you want to look at uh, some of these uh, bug bounty opportunities in the same way where, you are going to commit a lot of effort. So you may as well also take the time to really decide because taking the time to decide actually has a positive result later. And uh, so it's, it's really, that's what is counterintuitive is that your brain tells you, you know, I'm not printing now, so I need to find another button, find me a button to print money. But the reality is, uh, you know, just, you know, be confident in the fact that the button is there and that, uh, you're going to also have a better impact if you take your time. Yeah, I think there's a lot of nuance nowadays and a lot of ways you can play this game. For example, if you are one of the guys that's in a team or in a, a company, you can easily have a babysitter bounty that you're looking at. You can easily just do what you suggested and just have the project that you're always looking at. And all it takes for them to make one mistake and you're going to catch it. Like, let's say you, you build a, a private testing suit for them. Uh, you know, ideally you would share with them, but let's say you really want that heavy bounty. You could keep that suit to yourself. And the moment they upload something that breaks some invariance, boom. Um, and that could take two months. That could take a year. And you don't have to self, stop yourself in one project. You can keep, you know, let's say you build out this invariant test suit for one project, you can go down to another one and you're just spreading the chances of you hitting the jackpot, basically. Yeah, and that's, and uh, that's to... um, yeah, that, that ties into what I'm trying to do with Recon, which is uh, something we'll talk uh, in a moment, but uh, that my idea is really to learn how to have some some automated uh, set of tooling that does the job for me because i believe that the vast majority of real exploits was preventable 100 like i'm very confident in that and i think that a solo engineer could have prevented that given you know sufficient understanding of every stack and given sufficient preparation and so that's what i what i want us to 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 get to a point is where 
we have we eliminate every low-hanging fruit from the the chain simply because we have a way to find them and i think i have the theory that it is economical to basically test everybody's code and so we'll see where 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 it goes we'll see how it goes i have spoken to many people that think it's uh you know too difficult but um i think i think we like somebody in some way has to uh just pre prevent more exploits and i think it, it comes from really uh trying dumb stuff basically uh, that that's really what i what i see a lot is like we all test for the normal stuff we all test for the you know the logical case we all ask what the project was developed for but very few people have any form of uh, setup to have some sort of a black box testing where you're like okay can i just poke it can i break it what happens if i try this what happens if i try that and so i think uh there just is a level of complexity that a brain cannot handle and that's where we want to have uh, machine aided uh tooling and that's where uh um i think you 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 want to expand as a, a solo researcher because uh, when i say solo researcher i don't mean somebody just reads the code i simply mean somebody that doesn't have the overhead of a company and so the, the those two things are not uh the same thing uh, you can be solo and still have be extremely productive in this space because of the automation and because the openness of it yeah i think it's no secret that our tooling right now in web free security is almost non-existent except for foundry and the leader and well now we have other testing we have homos and and other ones like you know and all those things but still in comparison to what could be it's very very early days so i think anything in that direction it's gonna help tremendously and i think it's gonna be the type of thing that this tool is gonna help you a little bit in a way the other tool is gonna help you a little bit in this other way and then at some point these all are gonna come together and we're gonna have this uh sort of framework that we can follow through with these tools that is going to completely eliminate any low-hanging fruit and so you're building recon to try and address some of that so can you tell us what it is and what's the purpose behind it what are you trying to do what's the vision yeah so recon is basically a set of tools that me and antonio are building that are meant to help people write invariant tests. And the goal that we have is that we can get you writing invariant tests within, let's say, if we can get you writing invariant tests within an hour, then we can get all, the majority of developers to use them. And then at the same time, if we can, um, uh, if we can have a catalog of properties that uh, help you find uh, issues and help extract value, then again, we can get rid of most bugs. And then lastly, if we can help you run the fuzzer on the cloud, you don't need to set yourself up in any way. You just press a button and you have like eight different fuzzers trying to steal money from real contracts. And so that's what we're building at, at Recon. We ultimately are a uh, you know, fuzzing shop where we, we would take you know, a 
consulting engagement if you need to bootstrap your invariant test. But at the end of the day, our, our bigger vision is to build a tool that makes it so that anybody can start their invariant testing campaign and monitor it without uh, any additional overhead. So if you want, I can show you the demo that we got. Yeah, it sounds like you mentioned four different products in one. So yeah, I would love to see it. Yeah, so I'm gonna show you what we want to release and we'll uh, do an announcement when the podcast is out. But uh, do you see my screen? Yes. So basically imagine having uh, something like uh, the Euler vault connector contract. Uh, so basically you have a foundry repo and uh, what we can do with Recon and this is the demo, so we already compiled it, but is we would compile the contracts and extract the ABI. And basically, uh, the way you set up a, a fuzz test is you need to set up some testing files, and then you need to uh, set up some configuration file. And the way we, and we basically do that automatically. So this is, if you've never done it, this is hard to show, but basically we just click a button. These are all of the functions that are gonna be called by your uh, scaffolded contracts. Then we have a, the possibility of tracking uh, ghost variables, so basically view functions. And then we just go on the results page, and now we scaffolded all of the test uh, files for your invariant testing campaign. And so all you're left with uh, to do is to basically write your properties, which will be the, the tests that are meaningful in your invariant testing. But all of the scaffolding, we have eliminated completely. Like instead of taking you an hour, two hours, we could argue with bigger code bases even a day to set yourself up. Uh, we made it so that it takes you, as you see, uh, a few seconds of clicking and then a few minutes of uh, making it uh, run locally. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm trying to think different kinds of projects how long that would take and how so for example that you're mostly using a code base that's well structured like how that would behave if i just had a uh like a few contracts versus like a completely fleshed out um folder system how how that software handle it basically would you have to like input the contracts individually or does it just read your uh, repository? Yeah, so for any Foundry project is supported out of the box. Like if it compiles in Foundry, we will compile it. And then what we did here for the demo is we have, uh, we eliminate all of the test uh, extra files, but if you have a non-standard folder, you will be able to add whatever you need. So you would just list it out. And then from user feedback, we will change this uh, from a you know a button to like a folder repo. So if you need Take to find box. a specific file, oh. you will do, yeah you will do that do it that way. Uh, there are some bugs with the tooling, uh, but uh, some of the bugs we may not fix simply because uh, it's just faster to fix them uh, locally. Like an example would be this enum behavior. This one will fix, but uh, fundamentally. Um, this is already saving you all of the time to set this this up so we we basically look at it from uh, as a win from that point 
And then the reason why we, um, I think Antonio is just a brilliant uh, engineer, is that this setup that he came up with basically ha has you, uh, like it gives you like a clear place in which to add more handlers. It gives you a clear place in which to track your ghost variables. It gives you a clear place in which to basically just run it. And it already has the, the files to run, the Echidna file and the Medusa file. But most interestingly, is already compatible with Foundry for debugging. So if the code throws like an error, like, uh, you know, um, initialization failed or reverted a constructor, instead of having to tear your head, uh, hair out, uh, you know, trying to debug it, you can just run it on the Foundry test and you basically figure out why it doesn't work and it can save you a lot of time. And by the same token, once you do break a property through Medusa, you can just paste the list of function called because the functions called are here, are these public uh, handlers, right? All of these, then you can just paste them in your foundry test file and you can debug a broken property in literally uh, 10 seconds, the time it takes for foundry to run versus having to check the logs, check the events, add more handlers, add more complicated tooling uh, that you don't really need because this is already set up for you uh, in, in, uh, in the best practice. Okay, this looks like it's a demo, but it sounds like it's pretty fleshed out. Yes, so, I mean, we can do, I mean, something we did is uh, uh, for simple code bases, the reality is that this is further fleshed out because like, let's say we have this yield box uh, repo that I put that is public. Uh, since it's a foundry, so again, I had to port it from hard to foundry. But then our app, uh, as long as obviously we have, we have the backend uh, compiling it, but basically we, we are literally compatible with any Foundry repo. So our goal with this demo is to make it so that people can compile any Foundry project uh, through the UI and they basically get those handlers for themselves uh, as long as the repository is open source. So uh, in this case, I have this yield box uh, repo uh, and, you know, the, I ran the backend before uh, joining the call, but um, the, the final version will basically have uh, a list of all of your repositories and a way for you to trigger a job to add any new repository to Recon, as long as it's, again, it's Foundry. And we're just going to compile it and upload the ABI. And since it's open source, we, we're going to share the ABIs for anybody. But that means that as long as you have an open source project, we will allow you to run all of this stuff for free uh, in the Recon UI. And then in terms of the pro version, there's basically going to be options to run uh, the actual campaigns, like actual jobs, like run Medusa if you do a PR, run Medusa if uh, I commit, uh, show me the broken Medusa logs, all of the stuff that is really boring and that you know big projects have to do. But when it comes to getting started with invariant testing, uh, uh, we think we made it as easy as clicking, you know, three buttons and then downloading a folder. Yeah, that's, that's fucking awesome. So like you mentioned you have a pro version. So I imagine the, this main functionality would be open to everyone that is open source and then if you want the cloud option of running things automatically as you do PRs, 
then you do the pro is that correct yeah basically we will do a, a pro version a paid version for private repos and for automation to pay you know for the engineering and then uh, this is also a way for us to offer a legendary version uh, where we also offer consulting so if you need the tooling and the automation this is going to make it so that you click three buttons you download a, a code you put the code in your github and basically any pr you do will automatically run the fuzzer for you and tell you and since we have this foundry i mean this is this is the stuff i'm really excited about but since we have this foundry setup we can take all of the logs for these runs and automatically generate a foundry test and over time even send you the logs of the foundry test in your pr uh, so we can do all of these automations so that all of the bullshit is gone and you just get the good stuff. Um, uh, uh, but at the same time, um, this scaffolding is mostly a, uh, it's really flashy. It's going to get a lot of people to get started, but it's also not replacing an expert. Like it's really interesting how people that are really experienced say that this is not particularly great because it doesn't save them the real time of having to think, the time of having to elaborate, the time of having to optimize. But people that have never used it, they think this is amazing because we lower the bar to nothing. There is no bar anymore. So I think this yeah, is- Yeah, I was going to mention everybody. that if you guys, I was going to ask if you guys are planning to implement some sort of AI to maybe fine tune into different code bases and that could probably make it um, save you a little bit more time on specific things that you have to do for individual cases. But with asking that, it's, it's kind of tricky as well, because obviously the, the pro, the pro, the programs that would benefit the most from this kind of thing would also be the ones that would be the harder for it to help. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's where it gets, uh, like, that's where it's really interesting. We have, like, first of all, this is not your, like, your end result of a professional handler, uh, because most of the times you will want to clamp it, you will want to add some extra stuff, you could uh, uh, have hackdoors, you could have flash loans, you would have asserts. And so this is really the flashy stuff to get people started. And then, over time, we already know what the, what a better version of this looks like. The problem that we're facing as uh, engineers, and especially like for me, is how do we make it easy to have all of the extra features? Because for us to change this to generate, you know, uh, assert false or assert true, try catch it or do uh, calls where are they're all ABI encoded instead of using the normal call so we can try catch all of the exceptions. That's really easy to do in terms of code, but it's really hard to explain to somebody at, a, at, a, at, a, at different levels uh, how to use that. And so we are in the process of uh, getting this to a place in which it works and then we expect to have major improvements on the uh, automation side so that as we help more projects develop their workflow and uh, you can imagine that me and Antonio worked with Badger so we, we had already had uh, feedback on that uh, workflow uh, on real customers but at the same time as we get more feedback we're going to improve that side 
And then as we share this with the community and we have it open source, we're going to try and see how complicated can we make it before people start quitting. Because if we did the first version with all of the bells and whistles, people would quit the second one line doesn't compile. Whereas now there are a couple of lines such as the enum declaration that doesn't compile, but we can just put a warning like, you know, you have to fix the imports for enums and you'll be done. And uh, it's, still, it's still easy enough that most people are like, okay, I just have to spend five minutes instead of two hours. So I'm going to do it. Uh, versus having a scenario where you have so much more information, so much more complex code, and you don't know why it's that complex, and you basically end up not using the uh, tool. Yeah, I think I think it makes sense, and it's still pretty amazing that you just like you get you get all of that with clicking a button. So even though there's you know heaps of room for other things to be added to it. I mean, this is a great place to start. Yeah, let me tell I you how know. we came to Recon. Uh, I think uh, it um, could be, um, like, first of all, I mean, why is it called Recon? Uh, do you know Do you know what the tool from Spirit is called to um, uh, basically to apply to, 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 uh, to, peer, uh, to security reviews. Like when you have to apply to a security review, you used to have to go on a tool called GraveMind because somebody at Spearbit is also a Halo enjoyer. And so when I built Recon, I, I just went through all of the uh, helmets from Halo. And you know, there's the Hayabusa one, the Ninja one, that's the popular one. But I thought I'd pick something that made sense with, uh, you know, reconnaissance. And so I just picked the Recon helmet. And then, um, what happened was that, uh, uh, and it's the reason why we're we're building this is um, there was the Elastic Swap hack from uh, a Coderina contest, and the Elastic Swap hack was actually a hack that happened uh, because you could simply donate to the pool to break it, and so that was an example of people just not going out of the box to find an exploit. Then we have had the Euler hack which in my opinion was another example of a lack of simply trying weird stuff. I don't see, like if, if I told you, if I told you in the docs, if you press this button, it doesn't check the solvency, everybody would have checked it for that idea. But the fact that it wasn't obvious at the time and it wasn't made apparent at the time, then uh, made it so that nobody even checked, right? There was a bug bounty, they did a contest, they're, they're like, the, the 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 setup was there, but the result wasn't. Another one more recently would be the Kyber one, where there's a interesting uh, thread on Twitter a discussion between what I believe is the original uh, father, the original engineer, versus some other engineer that they they basically have this argument. And the truth is, nobody found the bug, so nobody can claim to uh, you know to they, they could have prevented it because they didn't, because you know there were four million dollars on the line, so. So that's um, that's what I mean. But basically, the first version of Recon was like a prototype I built uh, myself through Foundry, where I would use Foundry randomness to tell me which next function to call. And then at the end of the loop, I would just see if at the end of all these operations, my attacker had more value than they started with. And so when I show that around, people were confused as to why I wasn't using invariant testing. And so at the time I didn't know uh, 
that 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 was an option and so then me and antonio met in uh, uh, paris actually at dss and so uh, we we then did this engagement with badger for the ebtc project and so it was very clear that taking that same idea of having invariant tests and then having some sort of base property for for value extraction can help you find real bugs and so that's that's what my long-term goal with this is is that if you're going to spend you know a million dollars in doing audits why are you not going to spend 20k a month on a fuzzer that runs forever every second and at least tries to do something because it just it just uh, the fact that we don't have something like that doesn't make any sense to me i think it's a very low hanging fruit and it gives some chance of doing something before other people are doing uh, and i think that's how most uh, hacker actually operate they just they do, they're definitely not you know more sophisticated actors in the sense they don't have like a mathematical paper explaining how they steal the money they just put the fuzzer and the fuzzer does the work for them and they just pay the aws bill and uh you know when uh, sometimes uh it, they they get the jackpot so i i think this is a better theory for for exploits uh, as of today uh and so we should all as a industry uh, start to have this type of tooling ourselves and uh, as a means to avoid again these low-hanging fruits because if the fuzzer can find it then the only rational question is why are you not running the fuzzer if the fuzzer can find it just set yourself up for success give yourself that chance by running the fuzzer and uh, uh, see what happens uh, i think um you know a few years ago we could say that most people you know didn't know how to set it up. It was slow because Echidna is a really slow fuzzer if you haven't never used it. It takes basically two days to get the coverage that you get in an hour with Medusa. But now you have Medusa, which is basically a peak, peak uh, security research achievement. It's an incredible tool and it's completely open source. We can all build it together. And so all we did with uh, Recon as of today is we made it easy to scaffold the Medusa campaign and we're also making it easy to run it in the cloud so you don't even need a laptop or whatever. You don't need to have the separate machine that runs for two weeks. You just press two buttons and you run it in the cloud. And so that's that's our hope is that by making it that easy, everybody's going to start doing it so that, again, we get rid of uh, low-hanging fruit exploits. So how does the scaffolding work when you get through the repo? Can you run us through like the algo and what you guys have done in a very short yeah. summary? Yeah, and it will, I would also recommend uh, inviting Antonio for the podcast to have more a, a technical discussion, but also uh, Antonio has explained this in different uh, workshops. So I'm going to keep it fairly brief. Fundamentally, we use inheritance to allow the usage of asserts that uh have a different implementation so what that means is that you're going to write something like uh, eq or t or check eq or assert eq and in writing that you're not actually using the foundry assert you're using a different assert based on the uh, underlying tool that you're gonna run so if you're running through medusa or echidna that assert eq gets translated to the hevm dot whatever the version from medusa and echidna Whereas if you're running it for Foundry, it's actually doing the assertive queue that you're more familiar with. And so what we did there is we made it so that all of the inheritance is handled. Like you don't have to think about it. So now you have 
compatibility by default. And then once you have that, then the next question is how do you uh, kind of separate your workflow? Where do you put the constructor? Where do you put all of the stuff you call? Where do you put your properties? And the simple scaffold that we have today will have a file called target functions that will basically tell you all of the functions that are being called. You can place these uh, target functions in any other file, but having a file that tells you where to put them makes it easy. And then the second file is going to be called properties, where you basically specify all of these uh, properties. And lastly, we would have setup, where it's basically just the file in which to set up the constructor and set up your actors. And so once you agree with this architecture, which again is has some opinion, but it's still fairly simple. We're just trying to separate those ideas and make it compatible with all other runners. Uh, then the next step is to um, uh, scaffold the actual contracts, as in actually generate them. And so the way we do that is by compiling the, or basically getting the ABI. And from the ABI, we get all of the, the functions that would change the state and the functions that don't. And then we basically just pass them through a code generation process that effectively just uh, gets all of the inputs, gets all of the targets. And then there's there's a lot more stuff that we don't have in the demo to keep it simple. But basically, you have different instances for different contracts, which means that you could have the UniV3 version from Uniswap uh, V3 and the UniV3 version from Algebra. And you could give them a separate name or a separate label and run them through the same color because the end goal is to uh, uh, make these, these type of uh, fuzzing uh, setups uh, uh, automated. And so, uh, but, but at the end of the day, we just uh, take the ABI, all the data that is already available, and it's something that you will have to do manually, and we have a, a machine do it. So the, can you, it's going to make mistakes that a person can make. Can you use it for the command line as well? Or right now, you guys just have the, the GUI? We don't have a command line uh, as of now. I think, I mean, technically we do, but uh, we we used it this way because it's uh, just uh, a bit easier for everybody. Because at least from my experience, most people don't want to use the command line. Like I'm gonna, like, I don't know if it's a controversial thing, but there's people that really like the command line and they think, you know, cast is the best. And then there's people that, don't want to use cast they don't want to read the docs they just want to have a button and you basically put a server that calls cast for them and that's what they want and so at, as of today it's a, a better trade-off to put it on a separate ui uh, uh, especially I, I disagree in i disagree a little bit in the sense that only having it for a separate ui has a lot of friction for most researchers because I believe most of us are using VS Code or whatever editor to go for the audit. And I think having that extra friction of like having to go through the UI and clicking around and stuff to get that and copying paste and putting into your code, that creates a point of friction that's unnecessary. I think having the option of having the command line could make things a lot smoother because then you don't really leave your environment. You're just right there, pa 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 pa, boom everything is like right where it needs to be. So in that sense, I think having a command line will make it even better. But I think for, especially now that it's a new tool that people don't really know how it works, having the, the graphical user interface is like amazing because you can actually see what the hell is going on and how you're supposed to use it. 
So for starters, I think it's better actually. I think if you show it to someone that's not used to uh, doing a lot of tests, just uh, just straight on the command line, it might seem a, a bit uh, hard to wrap the head around, which in this case, the, the GUI is really good. So that's my two yeah, cents the on that. Main challenge I expect, uh, yeah, the, the main challenge you would have uh, in a CLI environment is that what's happening with the green and red buttons is that you're basically toggling on and off a bunch of functions. So if you were to map out the same behavior on a CLI, your CLI command will be massive. Right? You would have like, skip this, skip this, skip this, skip this, add this, add this, add this, add this. And then if you add the permutations, because the reason why the UI is there is because I'm trying to solve the specific problem of you defining a ERC20 token and clicking a button and putting it as an input that you can see like, like it's, it glows, like in a video game, it literally glows. And then the second you add it there, we secretly add donation uh, handlers and we secretly add more behavior that you don't even need to see. And the problem I'm really having with the, the CLI setup is that it, you can do anything on the CLI, but the second you add variations on the handlers on a per handler basis. So do you want the advanced one for this one? Do you want the simple one? Do you want the complex one for each one of them? And then I add this dynamic linking of this contract that I'm going to deploy for you and add it as one of the parameters. I think literally your, your CLI command will be this big. Uh, and so maybe we would need to have a UI that generates the CLI command. And so I basically skipped <laughs> the step in the middle. Yeah, uh, I, I was going to... makes sense. Yeah, I, I kind of see where it becomes an issue. Mm, something maybe worth considering. It's kind of like you said, you could generate basically like a markdown file where you uh, tick a box, you tick boxes and you can you can read it and do the same functionality which i think it's still i think like it might look ugly for some people but at least for me it would seem a lot more seamless if i could just do it all from my editor i'm the kind of person that just likes to keep saying keep things in the same environment i feel like i think i've heard uh a couple of people say this. I don't think it's in the majority, but I definitely am not uh, gonna dismiss this. I think it's a great uh, point. Uh, let's see. Let's see what happens. Uh, you know, in a in a week after we launch it, if it gets completely abandoned versus if it was a VS Code extension. I think the. I mean, there are challenges with the VS Code extension as well, but there's also some some interesting stuff that could be done there as well. Um, I think namely would be having, you know, labels at the top of each function that will allow you to mutate from one version to the other. That would be really cool. Uh, and I think to do it on the web, it's more difficult because just you, you have to code more stuff. But um, we, we really have to see how complicated things get because I guess my, my main, assum my main uh, assumption is at the end of the day, if it saves you time, uh, it's still saving you time irrespective. Your, your assertion is that it would save you more time if it was there, to which I would argue that is true. For the default configuration, it will definitely, because we would, we would have your Foundry repo, 
uh, your out folder so it's already compiled so you will be able to compile it locally so i think i think it's definitely more more helpful there uh, but at the same time it will lose on uh, the more complex behavior simply because uh, it's it's more difficult to uh, to get that right uh, uh, without uh, a ui yeah and when you guys launch is what state is it going to be is it going to be a beta stage are you guys going to have the pro version set up the gate yeah i think uh, we we should have uh, the pro version and the uh, free version both set up uh, by the launch date and basically we expect to be doing uh, uh, some testing uh, now as we uh, you know before before the podcast goes live and then obviously this is a never ending endeavor because uh, from let's say from a v0 to a version with multiple types of handlers and then having custom handlers on each of them and then having this dynamic linking that's that's definitely a lot of work but i think what we what we will do early is simply making making sure that it works uh and as long as it works uh, that's already success and then to have you know the the version with the advanced handlers or the simplified handlers that's a secondary concern simply because the the people that uh, will need it uh, are also the people that uh, can kind of figure out themselves so it's uh, at this point it's really a matter of getting more people to run invariant testing in the easiest way possible uh, and so that's that's kind of what we're optimizing for as of now and i think even for those projects that already have their testing set up it could also be useful because it might make you realize you're missing something you can probably um do some sort of comparison between your testing suit and whatever recon uh, puts out and see if there's any discrepancy or something like a handler that you currently are not considering or something like that. And you could add some value in that way, even if you already have like a fully fleshed out uh, environment testing suite. Yeah, that's what uh, is uh, rarely explained about invariant testing is that like, I mean, the recon handlers are very wide. And so what, what that means is that like if, if you, for example, they don't set up a proof on a token, so they will always revert there. And so you still need to do some tinkering uh, uh, and they're also not going to be clamped. So again, they're going to have a, a high chance of doing stuff that doesn't matter. So it, what, and what that means, it means that it takes longer for the fuzzer to find the paths that increase your coverage. They basically increase the lines that are reached uh, uh, in the code. And so, but, but theoretically speaking, if you had infinite time and infinite resources, you would always keep your handlers as generic as possible. So the art of fuzzing, and this is not just me, but this is like all the pro fuzzers that I talk to, the art is in striking a balance between having uh, no bias, as in you don't skip stuff that matters, but at the same time, uh, you know, not wasting your cycles on 99.9% .9 failure rate. Uh, which was the, the original version that I had on Foundry, didn't have any coverage guided. So it was actually 99.9% .9 failure, as in 99.9% .9 of all calls will revert at all times. And then that one uh, basis point will work. Whereas with Medusa, once Medusa finds a path, it's going to keep that in mind in its corpus. And so that's why the, the, the pro side is so interesting to us, 
but also it's like not something you will do as a you know like a, as a beginner but the pro side what, what we want to have is a way to reuse the corpus so that you just spin up a new job and you don't have to rebuild it and then the other thing you want to do with your with your uh, runners is like why do you this there's this idea that you should have one or some people have this misconception that you should have only one uh, hand, uh one uh, target function basically one contract that uh, handles all of it but the reality is you can use as many as you want and so with something like recon you can just set up your you know i'm going to test the price feed separately i'm just going to set up my own boilerplate there i'm going to set up the i don't know landing pool separately i'm going to set up my contracts there and then through the learnings you get in writing these separate handlers then you can write a bigger one because the problem with big big handlers is that it takes forever uh, to uh, to to actually do these meaningful transitions because you can just think about statistically the more functions you have the more unlikely it is to call a specific sequence simply because you have more combinations and so that's that's the beauty of having all of the setup is that you can quickly bootstrap a new handler for a new section of your code and then you just let that run as you start to build something more uh, something bigger so an example could be a price feed you just leave a handler that are super vague and you just let it run for a day and in the meantime you're building the rest of the handlers and then you take those lessons and you put the same lessons in the new one and now you're creating a process that doesn't keep you stuck and then your machine is not fuming gas because you know you're not burning the ssd by running it locally you know running multiple workers and multiple handlers and so again it really is a matter of defining a workflow that uh, we it definitely works for us. We think it works for other people. And so it, it, it would help ultimately uh, get to the end result faster, which is a high uh, degree of you know properties being broken if they're broken or a high degree of properties being maintained uh, through high coverage if uh, the properties are uh, uh, actually held in the code base. You know, it's, it's super interesting from a perspective that basically if you have enough time and resources, you're going to catch everything, you know, if you run the fuzzer for long enough. And that kind of, it's a way of trying to get to formal verification without doing any formal verification away. So have you guys considered doing something similar for formal verification tools, because I believe that would be even way more efficient because it is, instead of having to run the fuzzer, which is requires a lot more computation, you could do kind of the same scaffolding, but for something like the Sertura tool, the Sertura approver, and possibly have faster results with less time of running. Is that something you guys consider, something you guys have in mind? Yeah, we definitely also uh, were thinking about this. The, I mean, the there's two problems with the Sertor approver. There's really only two problems. One, it's uh, as far as I know, it's private source, closed source, so it could change at any time, and we would basically be building on a, uh, you know, just building, just like building on Facebook for Zynga. And then the second one is that there are cases in which the solver basically runs out of memory, runs out of time doesn't work it's not compatible and so we are not experienced at least i can speak for myself i'm not experienced enough to know what we could build and safely allow anybody to run and again if, if we build something that 
every time you try to run it, it just creates these errors that are undebuggable, then it's a really big uh, problem. But that said, the, um, and again, Antonio's uh, brilliancy comes, comes back because the way he set up uh, the, uh, the recon uh, setup is through a open source repo he built called Chimera. And Chimera is compatible with Halmos out of the box. So that means that we should be able to support uh, Halmos uh, fairly rapidly once we see that there is uh, interest there. And we also see that there's a way to make the workflow work for Medusa, Echidna, Foundry, and Halmos. So we definitely have that uh, in the back of our minds. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we simply think it, this is more of an achievable goal that can be achieved soon. And then in, in terms of the question with formal verification, that's uh, a, basically there's like a technical answer as to why the fuzzer shouldn't do formal verification. And it's that it should basically try the dumb combination. So there is virtue in having a dumb fuzzer, but at the same time, uh, there's a lot of time to be wasted in having a fuzzer uh, that doesn't progress. And so my two cents uh, are that uh, there, there should probably be some sort of a exploratory strategy, we could call it, where Medusa could have a pass where it basically uses the same ideas as parameter, uses bound analysis to figure out what the bounds are. And then it builds some sort of a virtual corpus through it, and then it explores, and then it goes back to the fuzzing. So I think there is a world in which that's achievable. Uh, it's simply that, um, at least for me, it's a bit too far off for me to be able to directly contribute. Uh, but if the opportunity arises, that's what we will probably do. We will do something like something really basic, like is Medusa stuck on coverage for you know more than three minutes? Check uh, the stuff that is reverting the most. See if we can do some bound analysis and try, and basically have this uh, phase between the fuzzer and bound analysis, uh, which would help, uh, uh, which will make it so, because the end goal of Medusa, in my opinion, is that you use the recon handlers that are super generic and they just work. Whereas today, if you use those handlers, they work, but they take forever. And so you have to find some strategy to make them faster. And uh, we mostly agree that the Medusa should do that instead of uh, the, the developer. It should be a, at the uh, uh, fuzzing engine level. Yeah, that's that's cool. I wonder if there is a way to fuzz the formal verification from Hamos uh, in regards to what states are runnable before you run them. Because Hamos, you can't really run on uh, execution flows that are above a certain size, but we don't know what that looks like. There's no kind of like formula. There's no uh, no reading that you can do that can kind of output, okay, this is runnable for Hamos or whatever. And if we had something like this that could, you know, point to, okay, this is runnable to to Hamos, or, you know, if you do this modification, this can be runnable for Hamos. If you can have that kind of fuzzer and kind of change this, that can give, arrive at a state that's runnable, then that would make it a lot easier um, to integrate it in the other fuzzes as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's uh, like, 
that's probably what we will try to do if we were to be compatible with Sertora would be that we would have to find many heuristics that allow you to make it work. A simple example from, you know, because we did the Sertora stuff with Badger in 2021. We basically did one of the first races with Securium, with Sertora and Badger. And I think one of the limitations at the time was the, it would basically, it wasn't able to handle loops. Uh, uh, and so something you could build a, a automatic tool for would be to unwrap loops and inline them basically or convert them because like in the world, loops can have, you know, a thousand, 10,000, an infinite amount of items. But in reality, especially in smart contracts, you typically have one to five. And so you can always unroll them uh, through constants, et cetera. And so that type of stuff can be definitely automated, uh, but you also need to be uh, very proficient with the tool. Like uh, that's something that even Trail of Bits does from a philosophy perspective is that the people that build the tools are the people that also use the tools. And so in the same way, uh, you know, we use Recon to bootstrap our own stuff. Like if I have to set something up, I'm going to use it. I built it so I can use it to be quite honest. And so the, uh, the, the feedback cycle is, is very different from something that instead you just think is going to work in a certain way. And so that's, that's probably the best lesson out of, uh, you know, I guess uh, uh, they used to say, go work at a startup if you don't know what startup to start. Let's go work at a startup and see what the common issue is. And the same thing goes for the tooling. You're going to build tools for stuff that you have problems with. You're not going to build uh, great tools for stuff that you have no idea for. And so Antonio has been doing this for a long time. I've been building, you know, my own stuff uh, for a while, especially when it comes to making it usable for people. And so that's that's really where the the collaboration comes from in uh, uh, doing something that uh, neither of us could have done alone, uh, but and that could benefit uh, uh, us, but it could also benefit everybody by uh, trying it out. And you also you also mentioned uh, a tool that I'm not really familiar with called Faro. So what is it? Yeah. So. Faro is uh, uh, another tool. I'm gonna share my screen, I guess. Uh, let me see. And uh, but basically, in judging, uh, um, and it's literally on uh, a Vercel thing because uh, you know this is like uh, the the darling of uh, Colorina judges. But basically, when you are working with a bot, maybe we we can get the bot trace uh, result here. Let's see. So, but to make a long story short, Faro is a tool to judge markdown files. And uh, let's see, we're gonna have, uh, give some alpha to the bot tracers, I guess. So blah, 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 automatic finding are here. So how do you judge a bot trace basically, or at least how do I judge it? I built this tool, Faro, with the scrape function so that I can just drop uh, the markdown file and uh, uh, most uh, markdown files have this table, right? You see the table here. So I'm just gonna select it and paste it. And then I'm gonna get this regular expression here for the headers, because I know that it's uh, repeated for every one of them. And so it's just gonna apply it. And now it's gonna grab me these uh, not cleaned up JSON. So I have all the headers from it. I also have a, and I copied it now, I can go on the score section and the score section also applies a beautification. And so now I have all of the 
headers from the bot report here and they're all ready to be marked because the way judging a bot works is that you have to judge each item individually and so um, we will go through the bot and what i did here is i created a, uh, a basically a way to have shortcuts so in this case this will be a high severity so you will just tap h but what you can do through the shortcuts is if you tab and you press one you get l if you tab and you press two you get r if you tab and you press three you get nc etc if you type four you get uh, to do and if you type r you get minus three for penalties and so what basically the tool allows you to do is it allows you to judge at this speed instead of having to copy paste go on a new line etc and once you're done it's also going to calculate the score for you so that way you can just copy the score and you can use it or you can copy the result and you can give people feedback based on your judging and so this is an example of you know doing something tens if not hundreds of times uh, manually probably thousands of reports at this point but um, uh, once you do that so long that it hurts your hands uh, you're going to build a tool to uh, avoid it and as far as i know many judges use this and there's also a competing one by ox someone uh, but ultimately most judges will use a tool because how else are you going to give feedback on you know 200 lines of findings yeah yeah judging is a really hard problem as well and i've seen recently that cantina has their new tool as well i think it's called clippy which is their ai assistant i was wondering if you have any insights on that as well uh i do not i like i said i express skepticism with any ai tool simply because if ai tool ever makes a mistake now you basically have to find it and have to fix it so that th those are my true sense on uh, the problem of uh, delegating judging to anybody is that like let's say i am the judge and i'm responsible to make sure that everything was done properly if i make a mistake there's i mean there's many types of mistakes and we could talk about them but at the end of the day if we make a mistake because we relied on somebody else like the pre-sorter uh, or because we relied on the sponsor or we relied on a tool then uh, we basically create a flaw in the process and so uh, it's simply at that point I'm like well why do we have the judge in the first place you should have like it would actually be more fair paradoxically if everything was judged by the AI because now you have a consistent set of criteria being applied versus having the inconsistency of oh this is automated this is not automated this is you know this is done in a favorable manner this is done in an unfavorable manner simply because of that which is also a fundamental issue of backstage in general or escalations is that in general you know escalating a finding and sending comments gives you a better advantage than saying nothing because you will always say something when when you're right basically versus when uh, you know when you're when you're wrong and so these are it's really difficult to have a process that is correct uh, i think it's a bit easier to have a process that is consistent and i don't think having a bot will give you a consistent process but it could also save time on things that are uh, uh you know very um, uh, trivial so i think there's an interesting parallel between recon for pros and clippy for pros 
is that all pros will be like, it doesn't save me time. I still have to read it. But everybody that starts will be like, oh, wow, it saves you time because it deduped, you know, 50 times or whatever. You applied the label. So I don't, I don't see a major negative risk, but I don't necessarily see a paradigm shift where there are ways to have paradigm shifts, but um, I don't necessarily think making judging faster is uh, the paradigm shift. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's great for, for low-level stuff, as in things are glaringly obvious. It can get rid of a lot of clutter. So that's I'm all, all in for. And I think that has a lot of value because otherwise you as a judge you have to go for it manually. And in that case, it you know wh- where it matters, you still have to do the work. So that still doesn't help there. Yeah. But where it shouldn't matter, then it doesn't. Like, you know, all these crap reports of bot generator or whatever, I mean, not the good bots, the bad ones, then it, it does not steal any of your bandwidth anymore. And I think that's amazing. I find it funny that, you know, years of development, and I and I love Codorina, by the way, but years of development, and I still think the, the Google spreadsheet for judging is the best form of judging, by far. So I know what the perfect UI will look like, but I can assure you that it's thousands of hours of sacrifice to make it better than Google uh, spreadsheet. Because Google Spreadsheet is shareable, easy to use as a fine function. You can sort. So, so you know what sorting does in Google Spreadsheet, by the way? It means that if I use the same label, it automatically groups them. I don't have to group and generate a group and add it and then do. Like, there's so much stuff that is so, uh, saves so much time there. And so I think it's really easy to get these easy wins but it's really hard to make the meaningful wins. And so my prophetic statement about all judging competitions is that they all look like they're going to be better than Codarina and they will all end up having the same problems because nobody has found a solution to the deeper issue of how do you handle hundreds of security researchers whose only job is to scam the judge. No offense. So I don't think there is a magic I think it's the classic problem of outsiders just, or not outsiders, but newcomers thinking, oh, why didn't they do this? And everyone has already been, everything has already been considered. And the IRD just shows that it doesn't work. Because I think fundamentally, you just need human brains. That's it. We, until we have AGI, it's probably not going to be a solvable problem. And by that time, it's not going to be a problem anyway. AGI is going to use a recon. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but I wanted to poke your brain around the, the new thing that's going around about beginners focusing on new ecosystems like Cairo or Solana or uh, whatever other chains I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think so. First of all, I am a pragmatist, but I'm also a person that likes to state conflicting views, and then the truth is going to be in the middle. So I think it says a lot 
that Shuwuni, the guy that made 500k in the ZK Sync contest, asserted, and maybe asserted incorrectly, but they asserted that they didn't even know the language before they started the contest. They did like a few days of brush up and then they just dive in. I think it's very interesting to consider that because let's let's take that at face value. Then that means that a bug is not some sort of a grammatical uh, mistake, although there are bugs that are grammatical mistakes. An example is using try catch instead of call or something like that, or using delegate call instead of call. But uh, many bugs are really a meta issue uh, about the understanding of what the code does. And so I don't know how you get that except by finding more bugs. So uh, the language, uh, the, the, the process of finding the bugs, the process of understanding something, the process of uh, in some way making yourself take the steps, that's probably universal skill. And it's a lot closer to solving Sudokus than actually uh, uh, software engineering. Whereas on the other end, obviously, a person is, uh, that has already done it, they're going to be familiar with the common mistakes. They're going to be familiar with the common practices. They're going to be familiar with the architecture. And so there's probably a lot of value in learning something new uh, simply because, or using something new simply because you're going to uh, be better. So the question that um, you, you should ask yourself is whether the new ecosystem will give you a better opportunity than the previous one. And so this is basically a follow-up to some, some other clip, you know, that of me on YouTube, where it's like, you know, you have to look back nine months. And so if I'm like, bro, if we had, you know, in September to October, we had the Solana boom, then it is rational to think that in a few months, there's going to be a Solana boom again. So I will go and look at the funding of projects on Solana. I will look at the uh, how are uh, new projects raised? Like, do they do IDOs? Do they do LDOs? Do they do LDP? How does it even work to see what you can do? I will then figure out the tooling because as far as I know, the Solana tooling is actually more advanced because it's a direct copy of another architecture. I think it's there's like this great uh, video called uh, JIT. It's DEFCON 30 and it's basically JIT uh, fuzzing the, the Solana compiler and it talks about some of these uh, te techniques and tooling. And so can you, can you use that? Because now if you know that you can use external tooling, you don't need to wait for us to build your recon. You already have, you know, Barp suite of Solana. So like that, that can be uh, very advantageous. And so what, I, what I'm seeing though, is that in every niche, you basically have kind of the wave. And so you have to decide or determine whether you can ride the wave, whether you can make the wave, or whether it doesn't matter. And so you have to basically make that determination. And for people that are starting out, I think it makes a lot of sense to be, uh, you know, the king of Solana. Just like today, it makes a lot of sense to be, you know, the ZK Sync guy or the Optimism guy. There is like there is very few shops that are that specialized. And so you can see an opportunity in our side, but you can also see an opportunity on the on the Solana Cairo uh, side. So I would suggest uh, uh, if, you, if you're going to go for it, I would suggest going hard as in commit hard and uh, do whatever it takes as in be in every workshop, do every hackathon, build all of the content, etc. And then 
but do keep in mind that you are playing uh, uh, you know a higher risk uh, uh, game uh, especially when you are uh, you know so so you just have to hedge it in some way so uh, i think it boils down to asking whether you want to be the big fish of the small uh, pond or the small fish in the big pond and then what kind of a uh, additional uh, wave or additional advantage you have to uh, to 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 rise yeah i think that that's exactly what i have in mind as well you just kind of have to balance out what kind of way what kind of wave you're trying to ride and i think a great way to mitigate it it's probably thinking more long term and trying to go for the wave that you think is going to go on for the longest and you know potentially become as big as whatever other pond there is like let's say if someone ever gets as big as ethereum then you that's something that you can keep riding and if that doesn't get as big as you think it would then you can maybe if you still want to you know minimize the amount the amount of contact switching you can uh, transition to a developing role or a consulting role so these are also options that you would have if you choose to go really hard and even if that ecosystem doesn't go as far as you assume it would be you still have other options and you don't have to contact switch 100% and lose all the edge that you built that's still going to stick with you unless you really pick a loser let's say you, you pick an ecosystem that let's say cosmos in i don't know a year just tanks down right then, then that's yeah there's nothing i'm gonna really tell you do. something really weird about this and this is something that uh you know maybe one day i'll just do it i'll be like fuck it i don't care i'm just gonna do it but basically i mean there's some shady story about ethereum classic so they're like the people that started it uh, basically are like i don't know there's there's something off there or but but also maybe just ethereum people that are like shit on them but that's what i would consider doing is like why don't you go on fucking ethereum classic and become the number one audit shop for ethereum classic because it's like i know it sounds stupid but it's like bro you buy a shit ton of ethereum classic at, at basically zero price and then you just try it because the reality of these um, uh, space with uh, with crypto in general uh, is something uh, there's this recent podcast by Olaf Wee Carlson, the guy at Polychain, the founder. He talks about like we are all working for the coin. Like you think you are working for yourself, but the reality is that the coin, Ethereum, that was minted, gifted, given, etc., is making it is making you work for it. And so you can work for any of these ecosystems as long as you understand that you can be extractor, as in you just ride the wave and you take the percental marginal profit and you give zero fucks, or you're basically building it together. And so another example would be that, like just go and check the people that organize DSS, right? Uh, DeFi Security, uh, Security Summit. One of them is Sertora. Sertora is the host. Sertora made the event. But who was the uh, the the, uh, the the other uh, the organizer was Electric Capital? Like, why would the VC host an event? Is because they believe that having a safer ecosystem is better for their bags. <laughs> it's the truth, and so it's really it's really interesting how you really get to choose the mental complexity and the risk. And so my recommendation would be to have 
kind of a 80-20 or a 50-50 approach. As you care less, you can have a 50-50 approach where 50% of the things you do are safer and 50% are just moonshots. And uh, uh, but as you get started, like you, if you ne- if you never did a contest, shut up and do a contest. If you do all of the contests on like Solana or whatever for for a year, then okay, maybe you're like okay, maybe I should expand. Uh, and vice versa, if you're doing them on Ethereum, then maybe you expand a bit. And so I think a, a more uh, balanced approach is better for people that don't have resources. And then a more risky approach is better for people that have resources because once you have the resources like uh, the reality is you can do whatever you want. Like Elon Musk, what did he risk? $27 million from PayPal? He was like, whatever, I'm just going to roll them. Like, uh, I'm just going to roll my chance, take, you know, the 10% chance and I'm going to go for it. And uh, that's uh, the beauty of uh, the world in reality. Like you can pick your shot, but if you're starting out, I would suggest a more 80-20 approach or a 60-40 where you do something reliable, you get some you get some gains, you get some money, and then you also risk it a bit. And as you have, you know, a treasure chest of uh, money, then obviously feel free. Like I would bet, you know, people that hit big about bounties are not in a rush to do the next one. They are going to be calculated. They're going to take their time, but they also know that eventually they have to do it because, you know, you don't want to just stagnate. So I think, I think it's, uh, if you don't have money and resources, you have to do, you have to press the button. So be smart about it. Just press the button, do whatever it takes. And then once you have some resources, definitely feel free to pick your battles uh, based on your ideals or based on what you want to see in the world. Because you can you can have an impact, uh, but it's going to take a lot from, from you. So make sure that you can uh, do it in a responsible way because you because you can fail. I guess that's what I would conclude is like, if I look at a project now, let's say I want to start something, I start something where even if I fail, it's it's useful. That's what I what I look to to find. And you can't do that if you you know you, if you're not afraid of failure, if you're not afraid of trying something hard. So uh, definitely yeah, I recommend. think that's a great way, a great way to to kind of sum it up. Just don't do things that make you afraid of failure. If you're afraid of failing at a certain thing then probably you shouldn't you shouldn't be doing it like i mean this is counterintuitive because you shouldn't be afraid of failing in the first place but if that is really going to take a toll on you like if you're let's say the financial risk you're taking on uh foregoing some certain opportunities is going to really cripple you then you probably should wait longer until you're ready to take that risk yeah, the way I teach it, uh, I was teaching it uh, this weekend because uh, I, I do, uh, I, at this point, I teach to people like random, it's a bit random, but like the way I was t- telling it this uh, uh, was basically the following. You want to have like a freedom number, which is the idea of Tim Ferris. Tim Ferris is like, okay, figure out how much you're going to spend, put that on paper, that's the number you need. Every other dollar doesn't matter. It's all, you know, it's all uh, mental illness. And so the way I would put it instead is that you want to have that number to survive. And that number, you want to feel like you're going to drown if you don't have it. And so you should be in a state of heightened uh, you know, anxiety, basically, until you solve that. Because it's a real problem. You have to solve it. But once you do, then basically the remainder of your time, you can do whatever you want. 
And so my advice is to try and strike a ideally, obviously ideally, a one to three where you spend one third of your time to survive and then the two other thirds are uh, uh, for thriving or, or creating new opportunities. And if you find yourself in that scenario, you're going to have an incredible uh, life because you have so many opportunities. Whereas most of the people, as in like the majority of people on earth, they have to spend 80 to 99% of their time just to get that value. And so you, you should really appreciate that, but you should also keep in mind that if you find yourself in that position where you're always trading time for money or you're just pressing the button for the next bounty and you're not thinking about it, then you really are stuck in a, in a rat race and you should do something to change it. Whereas if you're not pushing yourself at all, that's not uh, going to work either. So I think one out of three is the ideal. And then obviously like 50-50, 80-20 is more realistic because, uh, you know, not everybody can switch jobs when they have, you know, a mortgage and children, etc. So you, you want to you wanna be realistic there, but you definitely want to give yourself a chance. That's what I think uh, is super important is that if you know exactly what you're going to do, like let's say you're going to just work and uh, just be paid and you're not going to try anything new, you will have 0% chance of something new happening. Whereas if you at least give yourself some chance by trying something, you know, trying the Solana contest, now you have a chance. And so that's a lot better. And if that chance pays out, you know, you make $1,000 or whatever, that could be an indicator that there's more opportunity there. And so that's how you build your self-esteem and you also build your opportunity in the same way. So, yeah, uh, well put. I think that's very valuable advice. And I also wanted to touch on the ZK Sync drama that I know you have some insight in. So can you please let us know what happened? Yeah. Okay. So, and obviously I'm going to be, I'm going to, there's two things that I have to talk about for the ZK Sync contest. And so I think I'm going to basically do the, the, the drama. This is the drama section of the video, but the, the one is basically alleged cheating or actual cheating that has happened. And the other one is me banning Unforgiven from the contest because of what he did or what they did. So those are two things that I will address in this. But at the same time, I'm not going to, like, there's no findings in the public, so I can't really give you, like, a 100% explanation as of today. But when it comes to what happened with Helm or HE1M, is that we ultimately were able to determine through the KYC provider that the individual that owned the Helm account was either a person that worked at ZK Sync, as in somebody that I would call the sponsor was actually the person with that handle. So you can see that it's not even a conflict of interest. It's literally impersonating somebody and pretending to be somebody you're not, or it was their wife. And so once I was uh, shown the evidence and the proof of that, then I basically just went back to the chats and and uh, and because uh, the only last question was, did Helm knew about this? And the answer is obviously yes. Because obviously, if they're the same person or if they're their spouse, they obviously know. But the last thing to check was to verify that there was an actual interaction between Helm and the sponsor in the comments on the GitHub issues. And so once you have literally people pretending to be somebody else and talking to them 
and there is no clear disclosure, then the code of conduct of code was broken because you are supposed to put this in, in written in the issues on code so you're supposed to disclose this. And the second thing is there is a actual risk of impersonation, then uh, there's really not much else that uh, to be said there. Like if you are, if I was, you know, Gallo das Ballo, and then I had another account called, you know, Surgeon Pepper, and I give myself uh, uh, any, like if I don't disqualify myself and I'm uh, the sponsor, you know, for Badger or something, like what what is that? What do you call that? You Don't you call that cheating? That's because that's what it is. So funny, funny enough, I, I was uh, very hurt by this. So I actually called my father and I asked him, because me and my father used to play squash, which is like uh, basically tennis uh, in a court. And uh, uh, I asked him, I'm like, what happens if a referee is the husband of the person playing? And he's like, you can't referee for your wife. It's cheating because there's a conflict of interest. You're going to argue in their favor. And so, like, even if by metaphor you have this scenario, then I'm like, bro, I'm, I'm, I'm overthinking it. This is obvious cheating. This is what we have to do. Even though we all know that this warden has great skills, we all know they could have done an awesome job. I don't believe that what we found represents what happened, for example, in the optimism contest. There is a chance that Helm had insider information of the optimism contest, but there's also a chance that they're a great researcher. And so I will still award them the, you know, the dark horse of 2023, but at the same time, you, you, you can't do this. And so I wouldn't recommend doing business with somebody like this that is going to, you know, the second you allegedly pay them unfairly to their own belief, they're just going to cheat for more money. That, that's just not something that can be accepted in any way. And so uh, the last comment I want to make is a, a clarification on something I already explained was that I was talking to this person, the sponsor, because I was talking about the findings. And so I sent them some sensitive stuff. And one day we found a bug that uh, turned out to be correct, uh, but that wasn't fully explained. And so the, 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 the bug that was found had a specific impact and the actual impact was more complicated. And we had to investigate. And through the investigation of me as a judge, figuring that out, I basically found that it was a, a more important impact. And so I sent them uh, this uh, this uh, information. And instead of them like, oh, shit, let's go fix it. They were like, bro, can you raise the severity? <laughs> like, imagine, imagine, you know, telling the judge to raise the severity for you or for your wife. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, that's just uh, not unacceptable. It's worse. It's like you basically have zero respect for, for any of us. We all respect your skills. Like, just take whatever you would have taken anyway. Uh, and so that's really what happened is uh, somebody found a way to cheat uh, or at least to get this unfair advantage. And uh, everything else can be, you know, you can allege it. We can allege that they had more information. We can allege that they may have even left bugs in the code or whatever. But the reality is, uh, you know, there were people that knew each other and they had a vested interest to help each other. And they did that without... Uh, any consideration for the organization nor the sponsor who in the, in the in this context would be ZK Sync or Matter Labs that was actually paying for everything and having goodwill with these people. Do you think that has happened other times? Because I think in this instance specifically, 
is a very high profile contest. So obviously things are going to be uh, more um, dramatic. And if something like that would happen, it would be easier to, to, to get whoever is doing this. But under a smaller contest, maybe they could get away with things like that. Do you think this could be happening quite often, but just go under the radar? I think so. I think, and we had this discussion with the Supreme Court. So there's documents that talk about some of our ideas on conflict of interest and how it can be abused. But my my two cents are this. I don't think anybody has had literally themselves or their wife there. I think somebody may have done it, but I think something more likely that I think we have to is that make part of the rules is that the previous auditor or a previous consultant or a previous bounty hunter add more information. And so they obviously had an unfair advantage. And I think these type of unfair advantages have to be uh, made clear, but they should also be accepted because, and I speak as the sponsor, because to me, Codarina works. And obviously, you know, every other project is probably added even worse. So like when I, when I criticize Codarina, I start by the assumption that Codarina, at least it's in public, this happens in public. We have discussions about it. Everybody else just, you know, hides the ball under the water. But the um, uh, an example as uh, me as the sponsor is that for, for Badger, let's say, we had multiple previous auditors and the majority of them didn't come back. Like we've had Dimitri, HYH, Sturmy, Listwood. Uh, I guess I'm missing somebody, but basically we had all of these people, we had Watchpad, but like we had all of these people and we are doing the final exercise for security. Like, don't you think that we want them to participate? That we want them to, like they know the code. They, they may find something that we haven't thought about. We want to give them that chance. And so it makes a lot of sense uh, to, to simply say that you were the previous auditor and be invited. And I think as a practice, what I would say for projects is to invite your previous auditors if you think it's helpful to you or tell, or if you don't invite them, you should expect that they're not going to join. That's what's going to generally happen. But I think it's a really uh, dangerous scenario because if I have an idea about a bug and I spent more time thinking about it and now I find your code and I'm basically prevented to helping, what am I going to do? I guess I'm just going to give it for free, which works until it doesn't. So I think, I think it's a difficult scenario. I, I, I guess there is a chance that some people have uh, done this in the past, but I think most of other times the type of unfair advantage is really just being the previous auditor or a consultant, you know, that ran uh, some checks, uh, they know about a bug and they didn't tell, and then they send it in the contest. And so this is almost... I mean, it really is a shitty thing to talk about. It it really sucks. I really despise all of it. But I think it's just what tends to happen with some people. They If they find a bug, some people will not tell you unless you give them money. And so uh, having a bug bounty ensures that at least they're going to tell you. So I, I don't think it's uh, it has created something new. I think it just gave another opportunity for uh, the type of character to emerge. Yeah, I agree. I think in this space is just always going to be a type of problem that we're going to have. It's just the nature of financial incentives. Exactly. Let's go back to Unforgiven, like uh, the, yeah. the 
I had to make a very difficult decision with Unforgiven because I, I know they're a good researcher. Like I have no issue with them as a person. I don't know them. I have no idea. Like, uh, but uh, we simply cannot have people that abuse the rules or stretch the rules to such a degree that they basically create more work than they save. And so what I did with Unforgiven, and I have like a, I'm gonna eventually publish this gist where I basically tell him to fuck off. Uh, but basically the, 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 the simple explanation is that from a purely, from the same psychopathic logic that is being applied by a person that sends us tens, if not, let's say 60 plus reports, and that's a very low accuracy, like they basically created more work than they are saving. And so my rational explanation is that if you create more work than what you're preventing, then we have to punish you because you're not helping anybody. You're just abusing the rules. And so if I'm the type of person that will not scrap your findings and will go through, that doesn't mean anything because the majority of people, the majority of judges, the majority of resources that I show them, all of those findings would have agreed with me that they was clearly trying to, you know, round up, using roundup as a means to get all of these free findings. And so what I did is I asked myself, is this what peak performance looks like? And the answer is no, fuck no. Shuwuni, 80 plus percent accuracy rate, few findings, all important. Uh, Chainlight sends one finding, saves a shit ton of money, hero, doesn't even complain. That's what peak performance looks like. It doesn't look like sending a shit ton of stuff and then arguing it in post-judging QA to you know, gain an advantage. And so I had to make the decision. Do I tell every other warden that they can send us shit and will tolerate it? Or do I send a message that we will not accept people that are directly, quote-unquote, stealing time and money from the organization because the contest rules don't clearly have an exact ratio of that. And so I just took a decision that made the most sense. There were no, there was no reason to, you know, to be like, uh, to include any of the findings in the report. So I'm like, fuck it. I'm just gonna cut the plug and I'm just gonna punish this person for their behavior because I know that they did it on purpose. I know for a fact that if you're gonna send me things that you know can be downgraded, you're not going to send them as uh, real problems. I know for a fact you're not going to argue with me for hours about something that you know is bullshit just because the reason why you're arguing is because you knew that if I make a mistake, it's tens of thousands, if not more of dollars. And so you show me clearly that you're a psychopath. And that's what, what the only thing I can do to an anonymous psychopath is give you zero money and make it public that you're going to get zero money because there's nothing I can do. I cannot shame you. I cannot punish you. I cannot ban you. We don't know who you are. So that's all I can do. And that's all we should do as uh, all organizations. And so I'm going to end this uh, topic by saying that people that, not organizations that allow this type of behavior because they're desperate, because whatever, we're not going to, we're going to be next year. You know, there's going to be 20 more orgs that do contests or whatever. And then in two years, there's going to be like four or five. And it's all the people that do not allow this type of behavior. Because if you allow somebody to drive you insane just because you have to be nice to everybody, you're not going to have any fucking product. You, we're going to be left with people like this ruling the organization and the corpses of projects that get exploited right after because we let the psychopaths run the show. And so that's me 
not accepting that. I don't accept that. But I, that's what I had to do. I totally agree with the unforgiving situation, particularly because I've seen benefit multiple times from complete bullshit findings in a few different instances. Like benefit by a lot, you know, just not like, oh, he got like, I don't know, a, a few. I've seen contests where he got like number one or number two with findings that were invalid. Um, and I think he saw that his strategy was really good that, you know, if you overwhelm them, it increases the likelihood they're going to make a mistake. And by the time they make a decision, there's so much going on in the business, they can't walk it back. So if you can play that game in that way, where you can basically flood them with enough things that leaving you enough doubt that some of your things are going to be uh, valid and some of things might be not, they might just give you the benefit of the doubt more often than not when they shouldn't. And you can just keep playing the game. Yeah, that's why you have this uh, dichotomy in uh, bug bounties. Because uh, uh, we as judges, we basically protect the sponsor from some of these experience. But in bug bounties, you don't really have uh, the, that many well-polished triage services. Most triage, you have to do it yourself. And so it's really this dichotomy between the critical finding that you have to fix right now and the hundreds of times where you still have to drop everything you're doing. You have to go check a alleged critical and then you have to tell them to fuck off uh, in polite words. And, you know, my colleagues have sent, you know, tips uh, to a lot of people because they're like, maybe it's going to help us. And uh, but over time, it really is. Uh, it's just this weird thing. So. I think overall that the the fact that the strategy works is a uh, problem, and so that has to. That's probably the biggest problem with uh, uh, this type of uh, uh, systems or this type of uh, contest is that it really works. And so, if, as long as it works, people are going to do it. And so, it's it's just difficult to discriminate between a honest individual trying their best and, and falling short and so you're like okay maybe we should give them some help versus somebody that does it systemically and so the unfortunate reality is that we have to be dicks to everybody because some people will abuse our generosity and that's the reality one day there's going to be a fee to publish your report one day there's going to be slashing penalties you're going to be banned you're going to have to be kyc because there are some people that have received the benefit of the doubt and they've abused it. And since those people have created more work and more requests to allow the, the other people, the, other, the rest of the system to work, there's nothing we can do because you basically realize that it's a winning strategy to make us lose. And once you jeopardize the organization, the organization has to eject you and protect itself. There's nothing else that can be done. And so it's just this natural, almost law of thermodynamics that, you know, when you have the, what's it called? The, the example in business is like you have the, 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 you have to shift the tiles and you have insects in the tiles. When the, you, you, as the business owner, you have to check the tiles and when it's time to kill the insects, you kill the insects. And so that's really what, uh, uh, how it has to go. Um, I wish we didn't have to do it. I really do. But I don't see a world in which we have every warden that is highly intelligent, like yourself, like, Milo truck, myself, trust, 
Lambda, and I can go on forever of people that all send you a hundred findings each because they know it works. Imagine if everybody that understands that they can actually did it, it would be a nightmare. It would literally be, it wouldn't worth, be worth anything. So it, uh, that's really my point is that we will never go back from that decision because I took the decision that I think can save this type of project like Code Arena. And uh, I believe that any project that takes the opposite decision will fail inexorably because you, tell, you told the psychopaths that they run the asylum. And so good luck with that. Yeah, I agree. And to end on a good note, congratulations for winning your contest uh, after all this time. So what are the, pl the future plans for Alex? Yeah, thank you. And uh, it has been uh, a long time. I wanted to go full-time security since June of last year, as in 2022. And then I was asked to stay at Badger and help them finish uh, their uh, uh, EBTC product. And so because I was uh, basically, I grew up uh, my skill there, I thought it was would have been a dick move to leave. And I was being treated well. So I helped them do that, but that was my plan all along was to do security. And so the, the, my goals for this year are really just true. One of them is to get the LSR promotion and basically be recognized as LSR. And then the, I, I guess I'll have a third, but the second one will be to have recon so that we can fuzz everything on chain. And then my real goal is to prevent a real exploit this year. So that's my only goal. That is a real goal. The other two, I think, will achieve uh, whether I want it or not. But I want to prevent a real exploit so that uh, uh, I know that I've done uh, something that has impact instead of, you know, some random thing. So that's what I'm going to be optimizing for is being on the chain and preventing real issues because that's what I want to uh, do this year. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming by. As always, a lot of alpha coming from you. And excited to see you saving on-chain money for reals. Thank you for having me, Hake. And I look forward to having you on our uh, weekly Warden podcast if it ever uh, pops off. And maybe we'll talk about uh, your strategies to, to make, a uh, make a bang. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, man. Thank you, man.